I want to invite you to think to a time when you have been surprised by a call to go and do something that was so out of your normal expectations that all you could really say was, really? I had a crush on a girl named Mitzi. I was a middle schooler. Um, she was one of those people who just set my heart a Twitter and would stick the tongue to the roof of my mouth. I, I couldn't talk to her. I was too scared because I just thought she was so wonderful. And I, I'll never forget the day when she came up to me and she said, can I talk to you after class? And she had this like, look of excitement in her eyes. And I went, my day has come. God has blessed this poor, unfortunate sinner in an amazing way. And so the class comes to an end, and I, I stay behind at my desk, and, and Mitzi comes up, and, and she looks with that same look of excited anticipation in her eyes, and she says, you know, I've been meaning to ask you something. Could you introduce me to your friend Paul? <laughs> and I'm like... Really? <laughs> so you go into your boss's office, and things have not been as, as stable as you would like, and you're, you don't really feel like you've been delivering all that you would want to have delivered. And you're kind of anxious that, that he's calling you in for a, a reprimand, and the, the conversation, to your utter shock, goes the other direction. He's calling you in for a promotion. And you go, really? Or, or you find yourself maybe in um, a doctor's office and you came in because you were just feeling this persistent kind of backache and he's run, he's run some tests and sent you through some scans and he comes back into the office and he's looking like weirdly sober and he says the tests suggest that there's a growth there. And all of the breath goes out of your body and you say, really? Or you're sitting on the, on the team bench, and the game is really tight, and it's coming down to the last seconds, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn on the basis of this final penalty kick or maybe a foul shot, and the coach looks down the bench, points at you, and says, you're in. You've got this. And you go, Really? Life is wildly full of these really moments, if you think about it. Times when things that we had never expected come right into our face and we find ourselves called to go and do something that we had not predicted. We have our minds set on how things usually work or ought to work or we want them to work and then there's this wild curveball or slider that throws us utterly out of sorts. And the really wild thing is that it is often God who seems to specialize in throwing the breaking ball. In calling us to go and do things for which we feel ill-prepared or which feel dangerous 
or which just are so outside of our expectation. We all have a certain idea about how God works or should work. We have these assumptions and suppositions about the way it's supposed to go. God ought to show up in, in, in consistent, predictable ways. God ought to, 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 to do things that make common sense. God ought to ask us only what we are comfortable with, what I'm gifted for, with what I'm ready to do. But then God causes or allows or he asserts or commands things that confound our expectations and leave us just saying, really, really, really. Now, I have this theory that part of the struggle we have sometimes with God around these moments is because we are not yet altogether fully at home with the notion of God. And I'm not talking about a projection of our ideals or, a, um, or a, uh, an extension of our hopes, but a real God, a really independent God. A divine therapist, we're good with. Somebody who can be our comforter, wonderful. A cosmic concierge that can help us make our way better through life, we're good with that. A heavenly ATM that can supply our needs. A spiritual charging station when the Tesla of my life is running low. I'm good with all of these things, but a God who acts independently, who has his own rule set, is something that takes a long time to get used to. A God that doesn't have to base his actions or his decisions or his strategies on customer satisfaction surveys or on polling results or on my need to have him act in a previously established way. This is what it means to have a, a God, a true God. He can, he can put a fence around any tree he wants in the garden and say, yeah, don't go there. Don't go there. He can come to us when we're slumbering, when we're comfortable, and say, get up and go there. I want you to go there. And at all times and at all places, if he's really God, then he is utterly free to work out his will in the ways that he chooses by definition. That's what it means to be God and not just applying for the job. Now, that's going to be a really important idea to, to, to remember, and that's why I'm spending all my time on it right now, is because we're going to come across, as we walk through the Exodus story, and if you're just joining us today, we are walking through the biblical book of Exodus. We're in the second installment of our series, a series we're calling Wild. And, and we're going to be running into some encounters and, and narratives in these days ahead in which we're going to hear about some pretty wild things things that are going to just shake us up and, and provoke us sort of a really from us. We're going to find lots of, uh, of times are struggling to make sense of why this could possibly be, be good. We're going to hear about plagues. We're going to hear about the death of children. We're going to run into all kinds of things that will test us. And it's going to be very important to remember in those moments that we are not God. 
I had an epiphany about this when I was in my late 20s. Strangely, it was a, a PBS show that helped me at the time. It was one of those shows about cosmology where the scientists are sort of explaining to you how big the universe is. Now, I, I knew the universe was big, but I will tell you that this particular show sort of blew out the sides on my, my box in terms of just how big the universe is, how vast it is, what an amazing thing it is, all of the different bodies and forces that work there. I just, it, had, it was an expanse so much larger than I had conceived. And the scientists were making clear to us that it's, it's almost impossible for human wiring to take this in, the, the concept of infinity. And, and they also went on in the program to talk about how this is at, true at the micro, not just the macro level, and how, how, how the universe as we know it is made up at the, at the smallest level in the most remarkable way, how all of the matter that you see, you know, to touch the arm of your, the person sitting next to you or you feel the seat that you're sitting on or anything that's physical, they said it's actually mostly space. It's composed of these subatomic particles that are interacting with each other in remarkable ways and that are held together by these forces of attraction that, that, that stay and cohere across vast differences. And, 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 and even if you change the, the spin on one of these micro subatomic particles over here across an almost interstellar distance relative to its size, its partner will react. And at the smallest level and the largest level, and it's being played out at the largest level too, our universe is this amazing interaction of energy and attraction and influence. And, and it blows the mind. So, about that time, shortly after that, I, I'm reading through the Bible and I come across this verse. It's from Isaiah chapter 55. As the heavens are higher than the earth, as the expanse is greater than you can imagine, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, says God. And I got it. I got it on a deeper level than I think I'd ever gotten it before. This idea that if there actually is a being who created all that, who thought it up, who brought it into being and, hold, and, and holds it all together, there actually is an intelligence and a power that could do that. Who am I to second guess him? Who am I to, to second-guess him? As some of you have heard me say before, it's a f favorite image of mine, I'm like an ant trying to contemplate particle physics. You know, as ant brains go, I've got an exceptionally good brain, as ant brains go. But I'm in conversation, or I'm trying to challenge the, the author of quantum physics, 
so much of the time. And, and when I shake my little ant fist at God, because I don't like the way this is working, I, I can only think that there must be these moments where God sort of smiles, I hope indulgently, and, and thinks, really? <laughs> so I don't think that changes the fact that God continues to do things in your life or my life um, that are shocking to us. Um, and along those lines, the, uh, one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible uh, is a recorded encounter in which God comes to a human being in an utterly unprecedented way and asks him to do a completely unanticipated thing. And when we meet him in Exodus chapter 3, Moses, and he's the uh, figure we were talking about when we began this series last week, uh, Moses, who is the one-time prince of Egypt, is now living in exile out in the Arabian desert of Midian. You may recall that, that uh, Moses, who was once a member of the royal household of the most powerful kingdom in the world, uh, Egypt, uh, uh, kind of lost his stuff at a, at a sensitive moment, killed somebody, and has run for his life, and is living out in the desert of, of Midian. He has spent the last, count them, 40 years in the wilderness, uh, which is probably to say now um, he spent at least half or more than his life, uh, half of his life in the wilderness. He has had a lot of time to think. There's a lot of silence and solitude when you're in the wilderness. And he has um, obviously reflected a lot on his uh, storyline and on the nature of things. He's had, he's had time to think and grow wiser. He has had the active mentorship of an extremely good um, elder figure. He has come under the wing of a man named Jethro, his father-in-law, who is a priest of Midian and a, a large uh, rancher. And uh, Moses has been enrolled also, we know, for four decades now since we last heard about him in the first two chapters of the book. He's been enrolled in Character Academy. We, we have a word for it. It's, a, it's the words have changed over time. We call it marriage. <laughs> and you can pretty much be sure that Moses has undergone some character development, as we all do when we go through that academy. So... I'm going to bet that by the time we meet Moses here, he's matured. He's a little bit less of a hothead. He's a, he's, a, he's a more mature, wise, thoughtful person. But Exodus 3 begins like this, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It bears mentioning here that um, uh, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, have you heard of Horeb and Sinai? You probably at least heard of Sinai, um, that these are one in the same place. Uh, apparently, uh, people feel that, that those who lived on one side of the mountain called it Horeb, and those who lived on the other side of the mountain looked up and called it Sinai, but it's the one place. And scholars are pretty sure of that, of that now. What they're not so sure about or united about is where that mountain is today. 
someplace in the Arabian Desert. There are a bunch of mountains, and there are varying theories about which of these mountains uh, is actually Horeb. Um, it became known as the Mountain of God because of the encounter we're about to read about, but also because of another encounter that happened on that same Horeb or Sinai later on in the story of Exodus, where God speaks again, and we're going to be coming back to that later in the story. The text goes on and says that there the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. And this is the key part. And by the way, the word angel simply means messenger. The messenger of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. In flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. You might be interested to know there's been a lot of speculation over the years about the nature of the messenger speaking from within the fire. And um, there are a lot of scholars who think this is the same messenger who appears later on in the story of the book of Daniel, um, in which the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has set things up in such a way that all of his subjects, including the exiled Jews that are living in Babylon at this moment, have to bow down and worship him. And a couple of, of really devoted Jewish people, friends of, of the biblical prophet Daniel, named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three guys say, we won't do it. We're not, we're not going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because they believe there is a God. Capital letters and in the singular. And they will do nothing that, does, that, that suggests they don't hold to that God as supreme. And so he, they are thrown into a fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar's uh, minions. And amazingly, they're not burned up in the fire. And um, even more puzzling is that when, when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, he sees the three Jewish people and a fourth figure who he says appeared like a son of man. When Jesus introduced himself in the New Testament to people, he said, I am the son of man. Which is to say, Jesus was saying, I was the figure that was there in the fire as the savior and the redeemer. And many scholars think that when you're hearing from the messenger within the burning bush, we are meeting the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, present. Um, encountering this person who will become a significant figure in God's plan, Moses, and speaking to him. Now, up to this particular moment, Mo Moses isn't thinking theologically. Uh, this is a phenomenological thing for Moses. I mean, the bush is on fire, and it's not burning up. 
that's weird. That's wild, Moses is thinking to himself. I need to check this thing out. He has never, he's got no category in his mind for a God who speaks through flaming shrubbery. (laughs) That would be so weird. So he's not looking for that. Um, there's, There's no occurrence of this in history prior to this moment. And I should add, it doesn't ever happen again. Unless you've got something going on in your backyard you haven't told me about. Um, This is like a one-time moment where God does it just this way. And I think there's a takeaway from this. God can surprise us with the way he chooses to speak to us. or, Or even appear to us. And that's important to know because if we've got a mindset that thinks, oh, this is the way God would speak to me if he was going to speak to me. We could miss what he is actually trying to do to appear to us and to speak to us. I've had moments, I I would love it if almost all the time when I needed to hear from God or when God wanted to speak to me, he would just put an audible sentence in my head. Dan, do this. This is the spread on the Bears game this afternoon. (laughs) It's happened for me. I can think of a small handful of times where it's just like it's happened. I was talking this, this past week with a, a, a woman who was going through a very difficult time in her marriage and was, was a terrible conflict in the relationship and was at that point where she thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And she said audibly in her head, be still and know that I am God. It's a verse of scripture. Be still and know that I am God, she heard. And what she was telling me in the conversation was, it, it immediately went right to her heart. And even though she's not, you know, nowhere near close to, to knowing how she's going to help resolve the relationship problems, she knows she's not meant to go yet. She knows that God wants her to go and keep at it and to trust him. And to not let her, the, the conflict ravage her, but to be still and trust his, his presence in all of this. I've known people who, who, who swear by experiences where they were reading along through a passage of scripture and uh, a particular verse or a phrase or even a single word just became luminous. It was like it was on fire and they realized, they felt in themselves, I think God is saying something to me there. He's really communicating to me. In this, I've, I, I've talked with people who became convinced that it was actually something their child said that was God's word to them, which would not be unprecedented. We're told in the Old Testament, and a little child will lead them. It could be that God does speak through the voices of children. Jesus said, paid a lot of attention to kids and lifted them up as, as, as signs of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I have a friend who believed that cancer was the way God spoke to him. That that, that became the thing that focused him and, and changed his path in very important ways that uh, were an ironic grace in his life, as he put it. Um, I wish that God showed up in predictable ways. I, I, I wish he always did it the same. But sometimes he just chooses his own M.O. Why? Again, go back to the first point. He's God. He gets to do it his way. So, I don't know what your perception is, 
But I will say that if you do believe you are hearing from God, it's always a good practice just to check that with other people, with mature believers. Uh, it, it's a good thing to ask, you know, is this kind of thing that I feel like I'm being called to do, the sort of thing that, that God seems to have called other people to do, uh, at least categorically in, in the scriptures? Um, it is never a good idea to think that is God if you're being called to go and do something destructive. I had an incredibly good friend in college who believed that God was telling him to jump off of a bridge, and he did. My friend Mike jumped off the darn bridge, and how he wasn't killed is a miracle to me. Um, if you feel the call to go and do anything destructive to yourself or to somebody else, stop and, and get around other people and ask for their counsel and their support. Uh, but one lesson from this text is that God does have a way of meeting us surprisingly. And so often in the normal flow of life. You know, Moses was just out tending sheep. He was just out doing his job. He wasn't looking to hear from God. And then he did. And then he did. In fact, I wonder sometimes, what, uh, how, how long had the bush been burning? How many times had he gone by that trail and just never noticed it? You know? What if he hadn't noticed it? What if he had been out there and, and you know, he was checking his texts or the scroll <laughs> and, uh, you know, he just walked right by it? It's really a reminder to us that, that Staying awake and alert and vigilant to the world around us is one of the things that God wants us to do. Uh, and that's one of the great dangers of our age is how easy it is to lose our presence with what is actually there in, fr in front of us. And uh, our Vicki Bear, one of the great servants of this church in, uh, in years past, uh, used to call it the God hunt. She says, go out, she would teach our kids Get up every morning and go out there and look for God's presence, what he might be saying and doing today, and join him there. Uh, are you on a God hunt? Do you, do you get up in the morning and think to yourself, Lord, give me the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you're doing and saying today? Jesus once said, uh, the only people that are going to be able to respond to me are those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Uh, let's pray for that ability when we get out of bed in the morning. Um, so Moses approaches the burning bush. And uh, at this point, all it is is a burning shrubbery to him, okay? There's no voice yet. But as he approaches the bush, God now speaks, calls him by name and tells him, do not come any closer, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now this is the second time, only the second time in all of the Bible so far, where the word holy shows up. First time is at creation in Genesis where God makes the Sabbath day holy. Uh, but holy is a hugely important word in the Bible and, and important to our lives as well. Uh, it's the word that most describes God's transcendent purity and power. It's what Christian physicists uh, speak when they get inside quantum mechanics, particle physics. They, they feel like they're encountering holiness. They're encountering something so pure and brilliant and powerful and amazing. 
And, and we're gonna hear that word holy a lot in the book of Exodus and, and come to understand more and more of what it signifies. Um, but God introduces himself to Moses in this particular part of the story as, as the God who worked in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were the great patriarchs who lived long before Moses lived. They're the heroic figures uh, of, of the whole Hebrew story. And suddenly Moses, out there in the middle of the wilderness, for gosh sake, having failed in his life, having, having had to run for his life from, from, a, from a kingdom of royalty to out here into the desert, desert is suddenly encountering God, the God of all. And he's so overwhelmed by this experience and so humbled by it and awed by it that he, he covers his face, the Bible says, in abject humility and amazement. And God reassures Moses that while he is holy, he is also profoundly loving and compassionate. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, the voice from the flame says. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What would it have felt like if you were Moses and you're, and you're hearing this? How many times over the past 40 years do you suppose Moses just felt the anguish of knowing what was happening to his family and his people back there in Egypt. And knowing that because he had failed to control his temper in one moment, he'd lost the opportunity to be there in the household of Pharaoh and be an advocate for his people and bring about change for his people. How many times had he beaten himself with anger at having blown that opportunity? And suddenly God is saying, I've never forgotten them. I feel their pain, their suffering. I'm going to do something about this, Moses. I'm going to take them out of prison into Disney World. I'm going to take them out of bondage in Egypt and take them to the promised land, much bigger than Disney World. I'm going to do this, Moses. I got a picture of Moses hearing this and just saying, Really? And then the other shoe drops. God says, so now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I don't know how many times I have prayed a prayer that goes something like this. God, would you fix that situation? God, would you repair that relationship? God, would you supply those resources? God, would you address that need? 
without adding to that in my prayer. And God, would you use me to be the answer to that or at least part of the answer to that? How many times do we just miss the possibility that that the reason why we feel the burden we feel about that situation is because God has designed us to be part of addressing the need. And it's striking to me here that when, when, when God first speaks from the bush in the text, Moses steps right up and says, literally, here I am, Lord. It would suggest, I'm available. But it's really just saying, I'm listening. But when it becomes clear that God is not offering something, but asking something, Moses has a response that is not quite the send me in coach kind. Um, The text says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I mean, God, me, really? I said earlier that one of the wild things about God is that he can surprise us with the way he appears to us and speaks to us, but even wilder still is what he sometimes asks us to do to advance the purposes he has. He can call us and challenge us to do things that are risky, difficult, and beyond our gift set. In fact, I would go on to say he often does that He often calls us into that space beyond what we find easy or comfortable. And that space we call by a word that begins with F, it's the word faith. Not the word that other word that sometimes comes to mind where we think, I don't want to do that. (laughs) This is the nature of God's calling in our lives. We don't have time to go through every verse that comes up through the rest of chapter three and four. I hope you will read on in that text for yourself. But if you did read on, you will hear Moses then going on to explain to God quite patiently from his vantage point all of the reasons why accepting the assignment clearly won't work. It's a a bit of a case of the ant telling the author of quantum physics that he hasn't thought carefully enough about this, uh, but because it is just so human, it's worth really uh, summarizing, and I'm just gonna paraphrase here. First of all, Moses says, I can't go to Egypt, God, because I don't know your name. People are gonna ask me, who is it that sent you? And I don't even know your name. And God says, well, I can help you with that. My name is Yahweh, in the Aramaic or Hebrew. Yahweh, which means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And it's a very significant introduction because what he's saying is there's no definition for God. A name, can't, a name describes someone. There's no definition better than is because God is the ultimate is. I am who I am. In the New Testament, Jesus will introduce himself as the I am. In John's gospel, if you read it, he will be asked who you are, and he says, I am who I am. 
In fact, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am, he goes on on, the water of life. He goes on in all of these I am statements. And for those who only read the New Testament, you think, well, that's kind of an interesting poetic way of doing it. But it's really hashtag Moses. It's really him saying, I'm the same one. The same God that was, that's active now is the same God that was active then and the same God that will be active in the future. I am who I am. So when Moses now knows the name of God, and that's not going to be enough, um, he moves to his second excuse. Moses says, well, I can't go because the Egyptians are way more powerful than me. I mean, have you seen their armies? And I'm, I'm not exactly loved back there in, in Egypt. And God says, it's okay. I'm going to strike the Egyptians with such overwhelming shows of power that they'll not only do what you say on my behalf, Moses, they will pay reparations to the slaves as they're leaving the land. You will take gold with you. They'll give it to you as you're leaving the land. That's how I will affect them. So Moses shifts tactics a third time. I can't go, God, because no one is going to listen to me or believe that you actually appeared to me. God says, got that covered too. I'm giving you three supernatural signs of my presence with you, of your authority in my name. And they are a staff that's going to turn into a serpent. They are the ability to, to put your hand into your cloak, draw it out and have it be leprous, and put it back in and have it come out, be totally healthy. And they are the ability to take water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and have it turn into blood. Believe me, Moses, when they see that, they will know you've met me, that you have my authority. So Moses finally says, well then, God, I got one more reason. I got one more reason. I can't go, because I'm a terrible public speaker. I mean, I stutter, I stumble, I'm terrible at this stuff, and you need somebody that can address the Israelites and the Egyptians on your behalf. And then he just punctuates this. I love this line. Please send someone else. <laughs> Please send someone else. And the text says that at this moment, God's patience almost runs out. The Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, and I thought this is great, because the Andy said part is God actually chilling himself and not... Taking it out of Moses, he says, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well, God says, and I'll send him with you. That's how we'll handle this, Moses. I'll send Aaron with you, but you got to go. I still want you to go. As we move to a close today, I just want to say that it's, it's not a mystery, really. I think if we ponder it, why anyone would resist at moments the call of God. Because as I mentioned, he asks us to often to do things that are risky, difficult, and beyond our gift set, or at least our apparent gift set. And, 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 and a lot of what God calls us to do is so countercultural or so against our sinful nature or our, or our desire to secure ourselves that it's just natural to say really to God's call. It just is natural to do that. I, I, I get that. What's, what's unnatural and uncommon and really interesting are, 
are, are those times when the call of God comes to somebody and despite the, the realness of the situation, they say yes. They say yes, I'll go. I think of when Abraham and Sarah were met by God and God says, hey, I want you to leave your life here in Ur of the Chaldees, a very luxurious life they had, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And they say, well, what land? And he says, I will show you. And they said, well, what's the name of the land? You'll know when I get, when I've taken you there. And they go. And the whole history of civilization opens up in a new way. Or I think in the, in the New Testament, of how God comes to this little peasant woman named Mary and, 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 and to her betrothed and says, I, I, you're going you're gonna to bear and raise up the Messiah of the world. I want you to go and do this thing. And, and in spite of it being so beyond every sense of what's convenient on their schedule, on their plan, for which they're gifted, Mary voices it. She says, may it be unto me according to thy word. Yes, Lord, I'll go. Think of what Moses and Zipporah apparently ultimately did in the Exodus story, and we'll read more about that next week. The question I want to ask is, what makes the difference? What is the thing that helps somebody get over the really hump and, and go? And say yes. And, and the answer, I'm convinced, is actually embedded in the text that we've been studying. It's in verse 12 of chapter 3. Moses asks God, who am I to fulfill this calling? And God says, in effect, wrong focus, Moses. Wrong focus. It's not who you are. It's who I am. That's what you got to focus on. And he says, focus on who I am because I am with you. Think about how consistent that message is throughout the Bible. David did not face Goliath because he thought, you know, I may be a little guy, but I'm unusually strong. And I got really good aim with this slingshot. No, that's not, that's not what got David out onto that field. Um, I, I, I don't think that, that there's any way that, that Mary agreed to bear the Messiah and endure the suffering and all that would come from that because she thought, I am woman, I am strong. <laughs> the main asset of each of these persons and so many throughout history is this reliance that God was with them, that as big as the challenge was, God was expansively bigger and more powerful than those things. So as we head out of this place here today, let me just say in closing, I know that some of you are in a challenging place of decision and discernment. Or if you're not there today, you're gonna to be there before long. Through some burning bush, God's gonna get your attention, or maybe has, and made you aware of a situation that needs addressing. And, 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 and there's the, there, there's this message in it that he wants you to be part of his redemptive action in relation to that situation. And there's a part of you that's saying, really? And there's a part of you that thinks, 
maybe I should say yes. Lord, I, I will go. I will go face this sin in my life. I will face this addiction, this compulsion, this pattern, this blind spot in my life. I will find your, your power for change. I'm finally going to do it. Yes, I'm going. Or yes, I will go and speak the truth in this relationship that's broken and try to be an agent for bringing about a better day. Or I will go on this journey with illness. Though I don't want to, I will do it. I will crawl through the valley of the shadow of death if that's what's required and try and hang on to faith and hope and love in the midst of it. I will will train myself in the ways I need to build the new capacity that can enable me to be of help in that situation. I will rededicate myself to parenting this difficult child or caring for this difficult parent. I will confront this bully. I will go take on that injustice. I will go to Egypt, God. I will go to Egypt, God, and be your servant there. Not mainly because of my strength, but because of Christ who strengthens me. What's your Egypt? What is God calling you to do there? And how can you keep reminding yourself that God is with you? Here ends the reading for this day. May the Lord bless it to our hearing and our living. And thanks be to God.